Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. We read together from Exodus chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh by saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, Yahweh is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of Yahweh. Yahweh will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. So what we see in this text is another account of the Israelites grumbling against the Lord, failing to trust in him and his promise to them that he would bring them safely into the promised land. So here they continue their wandering in the wilderness. They're down in that Sinai Peninsula to the east of Egypt, and they've now camped at a place called Rephidim. For the second time, at least that we've seen, they don't have water. This happened back in chapter 15, and Yahweh provided for them then by that log that Moses could toss into the bitter water, and it turned it sweet so the people could drink. Here we get to verse 2, and the people are grumbling against Moses and against God for the fourth time now in the book. Questions that you can ask about this with your children, are they trusting in God to care for them and provide for them? And would God really just let them die? Which ends up being what their accusation is. Why did you bring us out here to die in this desert? So those are good questions to talk about, this idea of trust, which is really so 
fitting for us today? Do we trust that the Lord will provide for us? We've very much adapted, well, adopted a a cultural mindset that we have to fend for ourselves, we have to provide for ourselves, and it's hard for us to trust that God will care for us. So this is a good thing to be able to see and to talk about with your kids because it's going to be an important part of their life in the years to come. Moses rightly identifies that it's not really him, but God that they are putting to the test. We get their specific grumblings, again, the accusation that Moses is killing them, that God is killing them. So Moses prays. He takes it to the Lord in verse 4. This is good to do when trouble comes upon us. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And he notes that the, the people are ready to stone him, which is essentially the death penalty. They're ready to kill Moses. They are so grieved at, at what they're experiencing in the wilderness. Yahweh once again responds favorably. He responds on behalf of Moses and on behalf of the people. And so he instructs Moses to go before the people, taking some of the elders, so some of the, the older members, the older men in the tribes who would be viewed as leaders by the others in the tribe, take them with you as witnesses. That's the picture here. And Moses is to take the same staff that that parted, well, not parted, sorry, I was going to talk about the Red Sea. I mean, assumably it is the same as the Red Sea, but this is the staff that he used to, to turn the water into blood in the Nile River. So this staff has authority over water because God has made it so. Verse 6 identifies that they are close to Mount Sinai. Strike the rock at Horeb, which is a, a synonym in scripture for Sinai. So they're, they're pretty close. They're pretty much right there. The water is then going to gush forth out of this rock. It's an impressive picture. And the people will drink. I don't know how you visualize this miracle. I think the way you probably see it most portrayed in pictures almost lessens the miracle. It's like Moses is standing at a rock wall. You know, if, if this is, again, Sinai, if it's a mountain, he's, he's low on the mountain. But the mountain is steep right where he's standing, so it looks like a wall. And he takes his staff, he strikes it, and the wall, like, splits and creates this seam that water can come through. And so now the, there's water gushing down the wall. I don't know. We don't know that that's what it looked like. Um, it could just as easily have been a rock that was underneath his feet, and so the water is coming up from beneath. Either way, however this functions, it is a miracle. This is not the way God designed it to work. This is not the way rocks work. If you go in your backyard and you take a hammer and you whack a rock, you're not going to get water from it. You're not going to get much of anything other than a little dust, maybe, depending on how hard you hit it. But God is doing this. God has provided another miracle, another wonder for his people to see and believe. 
and yet they continue to grumble. Moses names the place Massa and Meribah, which are the Hebrew words for testing and quarreling, because it's exactly what the people were doing. Uh, and they're, they're arguing whether or not Yahweh is with them. How could they have any doubt after all they've been through, after all they've seen? And again, that, that applies to us. How can we have any doubt with all that God has done for us, with all that Christ has done for us? We're hard on these Israelites, but we have our own ways of rebelling against the Lord even today. The second section of our text here transitions from that miracle to, uh, I guess it's really, it's not really a miracle because it's not, it's not contrary to the way God has designed it. God is God and God is the one casting judgment here upon the Amalekites. But it's close. It kind of feels like a miracle as God fights for his people. So you get Amalek mentioned in verse 8. Amalek is the grandson of Esau. So you remember Jacob and Esau, the twins. Esau uh, marries a couple of non-Hebrew women and caused his parents much grief over that. And this would be ultimately one of the, the descendants of that family tree. And the Amalekites are not a friend to the Israelites. So it's this new group, not really so new. I mean, they're, they're equally distant from Jacob as the Israelites are. So they are a, a nomadic wandering group of their own. Many of Esau's descendants settled in the land of Edom, which is south of what we think of as Israel on a map. And just, I guess it's northeast still from where they are now. Since they're not going through the Philistine territory right against the Mediterranean Sea, the next most logical route would be for them to go through the territory just east of that, which is Edom. Now, they'll get there eventually, 40 years later. But for now, they're going to do battle with the Amalekites. The Amalekites have come against them as they were camped at Rephidim. They see Israel as an enemy. They're fighting them. And so we get Joshua here for the very first time showing up in the text. So you can talk to your kids. What do you know about Joshua? He's a major prominent figure in the Old Testament. And we even have a book named after him as he goes on to lead this people after Moses passes away. Joshua, son of Nun, one of the 12 spies, one of the only two faithful spies. We have a relative of the other faithful spy that shows up there in verse 10. So the other faithful spy being Caleb, and her, in verse 10, is Caleb's son. So some connections being made here as well. Moses goes to the top of the hill, takes his staff, takes a couple of men with him, Aaron, his brother, and then again her, uh, who is a descendant of Judah, son of Caleb. He is the grandfather of Bezalel, who's going to be one of the men who constructs the tabernacle later in the book. When Moses' hand with the staff in it is raised, the Israelites are winning the battle. When his hands go down, the staff goes down, Israel is losing the battle. Pretty easy to see what to do. you got to keep his hands up. 
the Lord is fighting for his people as long as that staff is in the air. And so Aaron and her hold Moses' hands up. And victory is theirs. They overwhelm Amalek. Now, because Amalek has done this thing, attacked God's people while they were under his care and protection, God curses them. And that tribe is to be blotted out from history, that they will be remembered no more. Now, this is a reference really to utter destruction, utter devastation, that they will be entirely erased. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not remembered as we think of memory, because here they are recorded in a memorial book, right? If they're in a memorial book, then they can't be blotted out from under heaven as we think of that phrase. So this is this blotting out is a destruction, and even worse than destruction, it's an everlasting destruction, as we could take this then as a reference even to the book of life, that their names are not there because they've rejected the Lord. They've rebelled against him and against his people. Verse 15 gives us a good phrase, Yahweh is my banner. This is true really even in the church today. So we're going to get to that. Uh, the The word for a banner could also be a, a pole or a, a flag, a, a battle standard. It's been very common in the history of armies and, and military warfare, though, that the two sides would carry a flag, some kind of a standard representing them and their people into the fight. And it was important that that standard always remain upright, that it always be visible, it always be seen. This is what the U.S. flag is for those who think of, of living in the United States of America today. That is a flag. It is a banner that is carried into war. It is what it is for to show which side you are on. Yahweh is my banner. The Israelites need no other banner. They have the only one that matters. They have the one that even fights for them. I mean, imagine if you went out into battle and the actual flag fought for you and you didn't have to do anything. That's really the picture here. As long as that staff was in the air, God was defeating Amalek. God is working through that thing. And so now, I said this connects to the church today. The reason for that is that the cross of Christ is our banner. The church bears no other flag. We have no need of any other flag. Yes, we live in the United States. We respect our government. We honor them. We subject ourselves to them because God tells us to do so. Even if they are a wicked government or a decent government, it matters not. We subject ourselves to them because, again, God said to. That's Romans 13. But the cross of Christ is our banner. It is all that we need. It is God fighting for us, and he does fight for us against sin, death, and the devil, and he has conquered them all. So a beautiful, beautiful thing for us to know and to consider, even as Christians living in this place today.